This is Back to Excitement with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 124. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetroPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you been doing, Fooleman? Not too shabby. How about yourself? Yeah, same. Um, things are going, you know, as smoothly as possible. Yeah, and what more can we ask for than that? Yep. Uh, so we have, um, yeah. we have an interesting pod for you. There isn't a huge theme here. It's just kind of questions we found interesting and wanted to discuss, which it turns out we can do because we have a podcast. Yeah, I know. Feel the power channeling through our veins. So yeah, this is <laughs> going to be kind of a grab bag of four different things that we wondered about or thought were worth looking into or discussing. And some of them will be Leafs and some of them will just be general NHL, but we're here and we're going to do it because why not? Yep. So let's start with um, kind of the first burning question that we want to discuss. And it's something that it, it's not inherently least related, but it's it's something that's just a kind of fun water cooler discussion that every fan of the NHL or a fan of any sport kind of has at some point um, about, you know, who the best player in the NHL is. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess the way we phrase this question is, is Connor McDavid, who is, you know, by consensus still considered to be the best player in the world, is he actually still the best player in the world? And if so, by how much? Now, Fudeman, you did a lot of, you know, deep diving into this. You, you put, you rolled up your sleeves, you put on your pocket protector, <laughs> uh, did all the hockey nerd stuff. So uh, tell us what you found. Is Connor McDavid good or is he awful? Only, only, only two options. I want to be clear that Connor McDavid is quite bad. No, he's not. He's a very good player. And he's so good that just in asking this question, I would guess like a certain percentage of our audience even rolled their eyes and was like, are you kidding me? Like, come on. Obviously, he's the best player in the world. It has a bit of the, you know, circa 2012 is insert player here better than Sidney Crosby vibe. Yeah, exactly. And so we saw it with, with guys who were quite good, like Claude Giroux and Jonathan Taze, but there was no credible argument that Crosby wasn't the best player in the world, I think. Um, certainly not after he surpassed Ovechkin, probably around 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if you're into stats as we are, you might have noticed that Connor McDavid's defensive results are terrible. They're quite poor. And when we try to isolate for these things, like say hockey viz, they find that his defensive impact is so bad, supposedly, that it's not quite to the point of wiping out his offensive impact because he's such a good shooter, as well as being a great passer and generating chances and stuff, but it's way closer to not being super beneficial then you would think. And you would say, okay, but is he actually outscoring his opposition? Well, when he's on, the Oilers get about 51.6% of the goals, which is good. You'd rather get more than less. But for a first liner, that's not that great. No. I mean, put it this way. the, The Leafs' entire theory of winning relies on basically their top two lines operating at like 53, 54, ideally 55%. Like, that's what you want from... A really top-heavy line. Yeah, like, you want them to go out and kill shit. And now, I will always remember that Catch's line that goals for percentage is just plus-minus with a fancy hat on. So, obviously that includes the fact that the rest of the Oilers are not very good, aside from Leon Dreisaitl. And the goaltending that Connor McDavid can expect is often not superb. But it's just worth noting, he's on there, his team either isn't outchancing the opposition or isn't doing so by that much when he is. 
it isn't outscoring the opposition by a huge amount. And they really are taking on a lot of water on the defensive end. I think it makes it worth a look, even if it's just to say, okay, but what's actually happening there? And you saw something similar like this with Leandro Seidel, who just won the Hart Trophy, as well as the Art Ross. Those two things tend to go hand in hand. And a lot of smart people said, does he really deserve it, though? Because his defensive impact, so far as we can measure, is pretty bad. Same as McDavid. And, you know, there was all this discussion of you nerds and your models. You don't understand how defense works or coaching works. Points are something we can count. But I think that it's interesting. And so, yeah, we'll embark on that. And also, as Leafs fans, we may have a bit of a vested interest because one of the candidates to be the best player in the world if McDavid vacates the position is Matthews. You know, right, we, we, we have like a, a list of stats where we can plausibly argue that Matthews is better than McDavid. That's really all this podcast is, actually. Yes, and to be clear, that's fun. But it's kind of worth wondering, okay, Connor McDavid is one of the fastest players ever. He's fast in terms of just raw speed. Maybe the fastest player ever, frankly. Uh, yeah, like... It certainly seems like it. I would say confidently in terms of the the speed of his skating along with the speed of his hands and his brain. Like his ability to operate at that speed yeah. is unparalleled in the history of the sport as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm not saying he's necessarily the greatest player of all time or anything. I don't think he is. But I think that his combination of skills is as far as you can go in that direction. He is blazing in every respect of the word. Um, that made it sound like he gets high. I don't know if he does. What I'm saying is that he's I really mean, fast. Have you seen his house? You know what? Actually, if he got high, that house would be more colorful. So <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he needs it. Yeah, maybe just uh, you know roll one up and relax a little bit, Connor. You got some time off. So all of that, like, it seems intuitively when you watch him just tear through people on like a one-man army rush where no one can seem to touch him. You think, okay, yeah, this guy is it. And I think it's, to start off with, no one's denying that his offense is fucking bonkers. He's probably the best power play player in the world. If he's not, it's extremely close. And he absolutely kills it at that. And even all of these, you know, charts and isolated things, they all say he's a really, really good offensive player. So that's not in dispute. Um... And it's worth mentioning, yeah. um, like the the, and this is something you you've you've pointed out. So I'd I'd love for you to talk about this at least a little bit. Is that you know bad defense is or sorry good offense helps you more than bad defense hurts you generally speaking at least for forwards. Yeah, the idea is that you know evolving wild they had a thread about this when they talked about percentile ranks, right? Like you'll look at the offense and you'll say okay. McDavid is 99th percentile for offense and first percentile for defense. And you think, okay, he's 99 to 1, he's one or the other, it sort of cancels out. But in terms of like what an individual player can control, that whole range of outcomes on offense is way wider. Mm-hmm. Um, and so McDavid can be, you know, in the bottom 1% of NHLers defensively, but because NHL forwards only have so much ability to impact defense that doesn't mean that it cancels out you know he's at the low end there of a pretty tight scale 
whereas offense has a huge range of possibilities and he's way at the top. And so, again, it might sound like when we say, oh, you know, he gets kind of outchanced or out XG'd and his defense seems to almost outweigh his offense. That makes it almost sound like it's a wash to have Connor McDavid on the ice for you. And that's not what anyone is saying. That's crazy. Yeah, that's definitely not true. Like having Connor, Connor McDavid very clearly drives goals for, for his team. Yeah. Right? Like, you can argue about, oh, maybe he doesn't drive chance quality, or sorry, like, you know, XG on his team versus the other team. But he's also, remember, one of the best shooters in the world, one of the best passers in the world. An XG when Connor McDavid is on the ice is like 1.15 XG, really. Yeah, exactly. He's one of those guys who just gets more out of what he gets because he's amazing. He's exactly. an A-plus passer and skater. He gets rushes all the time, and he can shoot. So, and even when we look at stuff like, you know, goals for RIPM, so essentially... um seeing how players impact their uh, goals for rates, you know, both for and against when, when they're on the ice, again, using the same sort of adjustment uh, for teammate competition, all that sort of stuff. Um, he's always been positive, right? So mm-hmm. we have to make that very, very clear. He's always been positive. He's always been, you know, pretty highly positive. And in the past, he has led the league, actually, in, in goals for rate. And I think everyone at that point would kind of admit, oh, yeah, this guy, by the eye test, he's the best player by the stats. He's, you know, certainly among the best players that you know it's all in agreement what's happened recently last couple years is that his um rate of i guess play uh, his play driving impacts have gotten worse and uh, to the point where they're as, as we've covered basically neutral and his goals for impacts have gotten worse to the point where they're positive but not overwhelmingly so the mm-hmm. question is not whether is Connor mcdavid you know helping you win games it's is he helping you win games the way we expect the best player in the world at this, like, over the last couple years, right? So that nuance is important. Right. And so, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's the thing, to be clear. I don't think anyone is dethroning Connor McDavid as best player in the world and then putting him, like, 17th in the NHL. It's like, is he clearly ahead of the other very best players, like Nathan McKinnon, um, less so Sidney Crosby after this past season, but, you know, I, I won't write him off entirely. And our own Austin Matthews or Vancouver's Elias Pettersson. Um, I do think it's interesting to question that just because it's such a given. We're so used to the best player in the world being kind of indisputed when it's a player of McDavid's caliber. And maybe that's less of something that we should take as a given. And it is probably also worth wondering... Okay, so why is his defense so bad? Now, we could do the Mark Spector thing, and he has done this pretty much in print, by saying maybe he just doesn't care that much on the defensive side of the puck, which is kind of harsh and character-based, and I would rather not resort to that theory if I can avoid it. You know, there are lots of players who are reputed to not care very much on the defensive side of the puck, but who have really positive impacts partially just because they keep the puck on the other end of the ice most of the time. So I do want to maybe address a theory that a lot of people have had, which is something like this. Dave Tippett, who was the coach of the Edmonton Oilers, kind of knows that his team sucks ass. Let's put it that way. Or at least that it's really top-heavy. He has two of the best offensive players on the planet, maybe the two, in Connor McDavid and Leandro Seidel. And then he has 
a pretty thin cast of supporting forwards and a really questionable group of defensemen. Uh, you know, especially with what Oscar Kleffbaum's been going through. And so, it's possible he looked at all of this and said, okay, Connor and Leon, your job is to be go, 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 all offense at any price because you are going to put up goals margins. Like, we need you to score, basically, because our team kind of sucks after you. We're not going to get a whole lot offensively out of the other players. And so even if you're firing it off at one end and taking a lot back at the other end, by doing so much and being a little bit better than average, over time, that will lead to a bigger margin for us. We'll be ahead by more goals after you step off the ice because you went all out on offense, even if it cost you a bit on defense. Right. And this is one thing that, you know, we often talk about success in hockey in terms of percentages, Mm-hmm. right 55 percent course you whatever what really matters in the game is differentials right 51 percent mm-hmm. Corsi at a super high event is you know probably gives you a better win probability than 55 percent Corsi when there's you know five shots exactly. I mean, that's not possible when there's five shots but you know what i mean yeah exactly you know we've talked about this before with high low event teams and the leafs have been a high event team for most of the last few years and The idea would be, okay, if you're more talented, have more stuff happen, because every time a stuff happens, your sample size goes up, for lack of a better definition. So if if you think you're a really good shooting team, it's to your benefit to have the shots be more like 35-30 than an equivalent percentage less, because you have more chances for your shooting percentage to tell. The puck goes in for you more. You're less likely to get screwed by variance. And if you are, say, a lower talent team, you end up like the New York Islanders, maybe, where you kind of gum up the works and you make less happen if you can avoid it. Um, And that's also sort of worked for them, despite them not having a lot of offensive talent. Now, some people will say, hey, this isn't necessarily, you know, you take offense and you give up defense or vice versa. They're not necessarily correlated. You should be able to be good at both. And there are plenty of teams where they don't seem to necessarily be tied, you know? There are teams that just kick ass at both ends of the ice. But if Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl were doing something where they were saying, okay, we're going to give it all away on defense because we know it's better for us to outscore as much as we can on offense, it would look kind of like it does. So if you take all the guys who played 500 minutes last year and just count okay how much stuff happened in expected goals when they were on the ice at both ends so you get people who are super high event mcdavid is seventh in the nhl and you have ahead of him players from new york players from chicago rangers to be clear yeah sorry the new york rangers who are you know awful defensively chicago ditto and andre sveshnikov who is just god and so same with, same with, with uh, goals. He's sixth in the NHL in kind of goals pace, where it's just a whole shit ton is happening at both ends of the ice when McDavid steps on. It's also relevant, I think. If you look at these fancy isolated stats, McDavid seemingly got a lot worse defensively a couple years ago. And even more specifically, he was not that bad in expected goals against until Todd McClellan got fired. Mm-hmm. 
on uh, November 20th, uh, 2018. And so after that, Ken Hitchcock, who is, you know, a very nice man, I'm sure, but a bit of a dinosaur, he took over. Everyone just looked like ass. Well, Ken Hitchcock was coaching them for the rest of that year. And then you see the beginning of McDavid's defense going to hell. And then the next season, you see Dave Tippett come in, and it's really pronounced. McDavid is generating a lot, allowing a ton, and so is Dracidal. And then, under Tippett, you look at what happens when the two of them aren't on, and the answer is nothing. Now, they still get outscored by a lot, because their goaltending sucks. And they got outchanced by a little bit, but they were super boring. They just gummed up the works as best they could, as far as I can tell. Now, a lot of bottom sixes are going to look lower event because they play against other bottom sixes that can't do very much. So it's naturally going to be sort of a quieter type of game event-wise. But, I mean, Edmonton's bottom six would have been the most low event team in the NHL. And so it's very striking. You have these two players at the very high end where everything is happening all the time. And then you have the rest of the team, when they're not on, trying to make nothing happen. And the idea is, we're better by enough that if a lot happens with McDavid and Dryon, we're going to end up ahead by more goals. And then the rest of the time, we want to hang on for dear life because we don't have the talent to do much else. I am reading in a fair bit here. All I can say is that the whole stat profile looks to me that this is exactly what's happening. Yeah. yeah. Edmonton, they're they're basically... You know, Katia has remarked about the Bruins having essentially different game plans for that super line mm-hmm. and then the rest of the roster. And Edmonton essentially takes that idea to its logical extreme. Yeah, exactly. Right. At least in terms of the styles or the what's happening on the ice when, you know, their stars are on versus their stars are not on. And um, this might be muddied a little bit by, you know, Dreisaitl and McDavid have played together some, and I'm sure that's even more high event, and then they've played apart some. I think now generally they play apart because now they have actual they have some promising players to go along with each of their stars, right? They have Kyler Yamamoto, for example, who formed a really good partnership with Dreisaitl in particular. Yeah, I did actually, when I looked this up, they played almost an even amount together and apart, mm-hmm. seemingly. And so, yeah, it's it's, it's a good balance. It's, it's worth noting Dreisaitl by himself actually killed it in goals four. Like really just yeah. ran over the competition because he had such a hot year. But. Yeah, he, he, he and uh, when I remember um, he and Yamamoto were put together, I think maybe end of December, mm-hmm. right? Or something like that. And he, Dreisaitl had a pretty terrible December in terms of um, percentages and goals for. And then as soon as Yamamoto and he were put together, they just went off. And they, they had, you know, really strong results, but also vastly overshot expectations, even relative, even accounting for the fact that they're both skilled guys. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it gave a lot of people a lot of promise about Yamamoto, and who who looks like a genuinely, you know, very good young prospect. I really liked him coming out of the draft. He's was one of those you know tiny guys who could really fucking score. Yeah, yeah, no, very good draft pick, and not you know not in line with the stereotype of the Edmonton Oilers by any means. Mm-hmm. You know, he's five eight, so, <laughs> but you know, looks like a good pick. Yeah, the the one thing I wanted to point out. So you said um, McClellan was fired in the middle of the eighteen nineteen season. Uh, yeah, so he was fired in November 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, Ken Hitchcock came in, coached for the rest of 1819. The team kind of sucked. Uh, then Hitchcock left in the offseason and 19. 19- so this, this was Tippett's first year 
Yes, this you, this year is Tippett's first. It gets really hard unless I lay it out like this, mostly for myself, because it's easy to forget what year it is almost. 1920 well, yeah, is the I, last I, season that happened. I, I thought Tippett was, was there for longer. I guess it has been longer. It's just this. It's, there's been such a huge exactly. gap between seasons, right? Um, so the only thing I would say is... McDavid's 17-18 was the first year his defense, at least in terms of expected goals against, uh, really looked poor, Mm -hmm. right? Like, prior to that, he was, you know, around average. And then that year, his offense went up, like, probably his best uh, offensive play-driving year. And then his defense, you know, he was starting to go more high event then. So Mm -hmm. it might have been something in his game changed at that point. Or he decided to make a more conscious decision to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in the years since, his defense has stayed kind of similarly bad. And his offense has actually been worse in terms of play driving. And mm-hmm. actually worse in terms of driving goals for as well. Compared to his first couple years in the league. Right. So th- this is the one thing worth noting. Mm-hmm. Is that like if this is a co- Whether this is a coaching decision or whether it's not, it does seem that McDavid is providing... A little less value on the ice now than he did, you know, in 2015, 2016, and 2017. Yes, and, you know, we do know that he struggled with injuries at certain points. And you wonder if that has some sort of an impact. Uh, Now, it's also worth noting, you know, lots of players have down seasons. Um, Granted, Sidney Crosby basically was offensive dynamite every year except 15-16 like his whole career, and he's only recently come down to where supposedly McDavid is. I do think that it's relevant that McDavid isn't taking these minutes and absolutely destroying them. You can say that, like, my idea of the no-question, hands-down, consensus best player in the world should be able to go out there and kick some ass. Like, to such a degree that even on these, it shows up as him being, you know, just an absolutely dominant player. Yeah. And, and, you know, Artemi Panarin plays for the Rangers, who, you know, they have some guys to put with him, but by and large, they suck Mondo ass. So, yeah, it's it's not crazy to me to kind of raise this and say, hey, is he lapping the field to the extent that we maybe once thought, that we're used to thinking because there was such a long period where... Crosby was clearly the best player on the planet whenever he was healthy. Whereas with McDavid, maybe it is closer. I do buy that it's probably a smaller gap than people think to, you know, the next year of McKinnon, Matthews, Pedersen, Eichel, whoever else. Yeah, the thing, it's interesting. You know, whatever we want to, whatever stock we want to put into things like goals above replacement, if we just use it as a rough barometer, McDavid's two best years in terms of goals above replacement rate were his first and second years in the league. And he's actually been on a downward trend since now downward trend makes it sound worse than it is he is you know still a very 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 high-end player right but if this is a coaching decision it seems like it's i guess i i would need to be convinced that it's the best thing to do i'm not 100 sure it's a coaching decision because of that 17 18 year where we started to see you know mcdavid's defense slip and i guess it, something that looked similar to what it would look like if he was quote-unquote cheating for offense. He was still, you know, a massive net positive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, was was that necessarily um, the best move, right? Mm-hmm. 
and then the year since it, it's it's gotten a little he's still been kind of experienced that experience uh, sorry experiencing that sort of cheating for offense look in what his stats profile looks like but without quite as much success mm-hmm. so and, you know could be for sure yeah so I, I guess the question is you know is is that the right way to to manage him if that's the case and if it's a decision he made it's like okay well what's causing him to make that decision or if it's just the way his game has evolved because hockey's weird and we have a hard time really pinning down values on players you know maybe that's just who he is the best offensive player possibly ever um or at least in you know modern times we'll say post post lockout I, I you know his offensive ceiling is absurd mm-hmm. but maybe he just is a complete glass cannon and that's that's his, him as a player, and that's a weakness that we need to account for. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that that's, that's relevant. I'm very curious to wonder what he would look like if he got, you know, the chance to play with a better defensive team. And I do think that... Well, he does have Tyson Berry now. <laughs> That'll fix it. So, yeah, it's it's not crazy to me to think that okay maybe he is a little bit off the pace he was on or if this coaching decision is good or bad maybe it's not the wisest possible thing it's worth noting you know the Edmonton Oilers were better this year somewhat than they have been in most of the years well since seemingly 2006 really (laughs) but you know they've they got better results than you might expect um from, you know, their previous track record, like they were a mediocre team, which is a step up from being an incomplete ass butt team. Mm-hmm. And and so maybe in that sense, it's paid out. And, you know, it's, it's probably relevant that they did outscore their opposition with McDavid and Dreisaitl on. And although they got outscored a lot when the bottom six was on, again, it looks like it was almost all goaltending. In chances, if they were trying to make it super lower event, they succeeded. So... Yeah, it's, I come down at the end of this to thinking, okay, I probably don't think he's super declining before he even turns 24. His yeah. birthday's in January. Uh, but he could be, you know, due to injuries or whatever else. But I think it's more likely that he is making a conscious decision to change something about his game or he's being asked to. It just looks to me like, and, you know, especially with, with isolated threat, his defense was not good in 1718, but it looks like it gets a lot worse the next year. Um, you know, according to this, they have him at 4.6 against in 1718, and then it's 14.3 the next season, where it's, it's like it's pushing three times as bad defensively. I don't know, you know, how to parse that out. I don't think Ken Hitchcock can coach in the modern NHL would be one of my takeaways, but <laughs> I, I do think that some of what we're seeing on these numbers and charts, and we've talked a lot about those, is coaching directed, it seems likely to me. I find that at least very plausible. And so I do, I'm willing to cut him some slack in terms of where I rank him. I still think he's the best offensive player in the world and the best overall. I would buy that it's closer than maybe we Yeah, thought. and I guess the tricky thing is, you know, these models attempt to account for things like even like coaching hockey business mm-hmm. model attempts to account for for coaching but it doesn't necessarily account and i think this is impossible to account for right i don't think this is a failing of the hockey biz model i think this is just a 
mathematical reality. I think it's impossible to adjust for um, heterogeneous tactics among teams. Right. Or within teams, I should say. So, yeah, if a certain player is instructed to play a certain way because a coach feels that that's what magnifies or maximizes you know, the team's chances of winning, then that's going to show up as an impact of the player. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is where, you know, we always have to be very careful distinguishing between what a player has done on the ice and what the player is. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's very tricky to do that in hockey um, as, as such a, you know, random sport. But what I would say, where I would ultimately come down on this, is that I don't think McDavid, if he continues to play the the way he's played in the last two years, I don't think he's by far and away the best player in the world. Yeah. He might not, like, I, I, I think it's an open discussion about whether other players are adding more value to their team um, on, on, on the ice the way he is currently playing. Now, if you were to... If, if I was to, you know, build a fantasy team, right? Like uh, everyone, in, like the league gets fantasy drafted, I have the first pick. I'm still taking Connor McDavid. Mm-hmm. Because I think his ceiling is still the highest of anyone else. And there's enough in this to make me think that this might be a coaching thing. This might be an intentional decision he's made. This might be a function of how his team is built that he feels he has to play this way. Mm-hmm. You know, he feels he has to make this trade-off of offensive defense. And I don't, you know, based on what we've seen previously in his career, he, he doesn't. Yeah. Right? And it, it's it's not, it, it's, it's un, I'm not saying one way or the other. This is a very equivocal stance. Of mine. I'm not saying one way or the other that McDavid, you know, is making this decision or isn't making this decision. But I think there's a very reasonable world where he gets back to elite offense and you know, he's so overbearing on offense that you simply don't have time to score that much against him. Right. Right, so like a slightly, just a more low event style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that might help his, his play more. The one thing, I'll, last thing I'll say, I guess, on this um, is, you know, we talked about how it, it might make sense to go more high event at a lower margin and then keep the, keep the rest of it really, really tight. Um, that makes sense in theory, but... It's not clear that's, you know, necessarily working out in aggregate because McDavid's even, you know, his, even if we don't look at goals for percentage, we look at goal differential rates. Those aren't as high recently as they, they were in prior years. So the, the theory of it might be sound, but based on what we can see, it doesn't seem like if that this strategy, if it is a strategy, is actually necessarily resulting in any benefit. Yeah, I mean, the end result is still that, they, you know, they're a middling team and... Maybe they'll get better now. Their supporting cast offensively has improved a little bit. But their defense is still very open to question. And, you know, all joking aside, Tyson Berry doesn't fix that, I don't think. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I do want to emphasize a couple things with all that I'm saying. One, to put this theory forward, you have to assume we can't isolate for coaching. Because, you know, HockeyViz tries to. And it says, yeah, basically his coach isn't doing anything. And it just looks like McDavid is having the entire massive impact. And two, again, his impact in terms of his power play, which is bananas, and his ability to draw penalties, mm-hmm. because obviously he's a complete monster at that. He's so fast, and lots of defenders have to obstruct him just to stop him at all. Those things matter a lot, and he's really, really good at them. 
And yeah. so I'm not discounting them when I when I say, you know, gee, he allows a lot of chances against it, even strength. It's just a given that those things are amazing. And that's part of the reason why I still think he is nearly the best player in the world. Yeah, I think what we've come down on is essentially probably still the best player in the world. There's enough questions about his five-on-five play the last couple years that it's not, you know, number one with a bullet. Clearly, you're an idiot forever thinking otherwise. Yeah, like that would be my bottom line here is like this is not beyond the realm of consideration. It probably is still him. But if you want to make a case for here's why I think Nate McKinnon is currently the best player in the world. Or Braden Point. Or, you know, Elias sure. Pedersen. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, there's there's other guys. I'm just saying that so, you know, it, it's not just McKinnon and Matthews, to, to be clear. <laughs> we, yeah. we talk about those guys because McKinnon's kind of the obvious number two that comes to mind, and Matthews is the Leafs guy who we're always trying to pump the tires of. But, you yeah, know, those are the other guys in the tier as well. It, it could be any of, like, probably six or seven different players, mm-hmm. if I'm being honest. You could make cases. And so, yeah, it's just a little more open than maybe we thought. And... In putting forward that coaching theory, I should emphasize, I can't really prove it. I can only say that this is how it looks to me, and I find that credible, but I could be really wrong. So, I guess it's something to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of segues nicely into our second topic, and we are inspired by the good people at Sportsnet, who are as bereft of content in this offseason as we are, apparently. And so... Anthony Stewart and Justin Bourne both looked at their top centers and wingers in Canada because we might have a Canadian division. That's something we'll talk about later on. But they just ranked who are the top five on the seven hockey teams that are in this country. And so maybe it's worth starting with just what did they say? Uh, Anthony Stewart has one, Connor McDavid, two, Austin Matthews, three, Leon Dreisaitl, four, Elias Pettersson, and five, Mark Shifley for the best five centers in Canada. Justin Bourne had one, Connor McDavid, two, Austin Matthews, three, Elias Pettersson, four, Leon Dreisaitl, and five, John Tavares. And I'd like to hot take about this, but I think that they correctly identified the six guys who should be in this conversation. Like, I think like that's pretty much right. Yeah, I mean, who else... Uh... If, okay, if you get really statsy, do you put Philip Deneau in this? <laughs> what is Philip Deneau's high-end points? Like, six? <laughs> I, I, know, I know that sounds ridiculous. Um, and there's a very real issue. Okay, so Deneau's basically had, like, one bonker season, which is last year. And it's, it's, it's difficult to um, pull apart him versus Brendan Gallagher. And we'll talk about Brendan Gallagher when we talk about the wingers. Yeah. But he, he might be the seventh best guy. He's up there. Yeah, I, I would say there is a notable decline in this list after six. Like you get to I'm like trying, I'm Bo to Horvat is, is the there. other guy. But sorry, Bo Horvat is also. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Bo Hor- yeah. And but I, I, Horvat's not on this tier. No, he's not. Uh, I'm just saying like this is who comes after. And then Sean Monahan hasn't really played up to his potential, so to speak, lately. Yeah. So. Horvat's a good player, but he is. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I see him like a kind of Nazem Kadri level player, probably a little bit better than peak Kadri. But you know that kind of guy who's like, okay, you know, if he's if he's your second center, you're laughing. If he's your first center, you're not a great team. Yeah, exactly. And Vancouver doesn't have to exactly. Use him. They have yeah, they have Pedersen. So good for them. 
but yeah, I think that this is pretty reasonable. All things considered, I actually would probably agree with Justin Bourne's top five. There's some debate. We just talked about Connor McDavid. Still have him first. And then Leandro Seidel moves seemingly between center and wing. Yeah. He That's, played 50% of his minutes at, at, the, at the wing. Yeah, they, give or take. And now, if you look at face-offs, he takes actually quite a lot of them because he's a better face-off man than McDavid when they play together. Mm-hmm. And so you could somehow end up being like, is Connor McDavid actually a winger? <laughs> Which, that's, uh, it feels like I'm getting into like a philosophical question about the nature of positionless hockey. Yeah. But all kidding aside, I think you're fair to say, okay, Leon Dreisaitl can play center and you can put him on this list if you want and he's really good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I think some people kind of think Mark Shifley doesn't really belong in this tier. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen a lot. That's weird. He, no, he's good. He's good. I I think he's good. But, you know, a lot of people look at these names and they think, okay, there are four lead pipe cinch stars there. And John Tavares, who is obviously our prestige free agent. And, you know, maybe like the last couple seasons haven't been so hot in Winnipeg. But like Winnipeg's defense is worse than a beer league team at this point. It's yeah. Josh Morrissey and friends. It's pathetic. And so, I, I don't know. I feel like Mark Shifley is doing his best. I I will say, anytime I watch the Jets, I am super impressed with Mark Shifley. Like, he like he actually looks incredible to me. Um, I, I wouldn't... I really wouldn't complain if someone had him five on the list instead of um, Tavares. Yeah. Like, I, I do really think that the six names that they got onto these two lists are the right six people yeah and i probably i like as covered i probably put mcdavid first yeah um i don't think mcdavid has provided the most value of these players on the ice the last two seasons i think pedersen probably has yeah i mean if you look at the vancouver it's kind of when he when pedersen is on everything seems to go right for them and when he's not it's kind of yeah, the opposite and, <laughs> and again like this is me describing what pedersen has done as opposed to what he is yeah. Right? Like, when he's been on the ice, whether it's through... He is a very good shooter, but whether, you know, it's through a combination of his great shooting and also a bit of positive variance, um, you know, Vancouver's just dominated uh, in terms of goals for. Yeah. And maybe you just have to say respect it. I, I do think Austin Matthews... You know, Obviously, this is a Leafs podcast. We're huge homers. We're biased in his favor. But, like, Austin Matthews this past season had an unbelievable year. And... Having him on the Hart Trophy ballot for, like, the five most valuable players in the league, I thought was by no means a stretch. He was really good. He looked like he had a positive defensive impact. And he was still able to score, even if he was a little bit farther from the net. It's really good to have a player who can score seemingly at will, as well as being positive defensively. I thought that was dope. The the only thing that that worries me is, um, you know, that offensive unicorn feature has, has kind of gone away a bit under Keith, right? Taking mm-hmm. shots from worse positions, less shots. It, it, it seems like it's been, he's, he's you know, we've, we've described it as he's done an Iserman, right? The, the, the myth, or myth, not myth, but like the story about Iserman was that, oh, he, he realized he was, he had to give up some offensively to get better defensively. And it's, you know, you can question how true that is. Um, <laughs> oh, believe right? me, I have some thoughts on the Iserman myth, but yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think... Detroit winning coincided a lot with them just getting some really fucking awesome players. 
Uh, we so also than... have Nick Lidstrom and Sergei Fedorov, who are two of the best defensive players in the history of the sport. But yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's what it looks like Matthews has done in terms of the results, right? And it, yeah. that could be a result of the Keefe system as well, which naturally places him a little bit further away from the net. And, you know, I think you can criticize that in terms of, you know, whether that makes sense. I think Katya has made this point. He's like, well, like why, why the fuck are you putting Matthews away from the net? He, he's the best. Like, he's so good in tight. You know, mm-hmm. he, he has incredible hands, incredible um, incredible feel for the soft spots of the ice. You want to put him in the da- most dangerous spots of the ice at all times. Um, but if the trade-off is maybe improving, uh, you know, improving the defensive results of the team, maybe, maybe it's worth it. Um, but it, it does give me some pause about whether we can expect the same level of crazy goal scoring from Matthews that we've seen over his first three years under Babcock. Because his goal scoring rate, I believe, did actually go down under Keith. It's just he was playing more minutes and more on the power play, too. And the power play was also more centered around him. Yeah. Uh, he became very much the guy. Like, the, the power play became the Austin Matthews show. He began playing massive minutes. And, and, you know, a lot of people are saying, yeah, he's supposed to. He's young and he's a superstar. Play him the most minutes. And maybe it's just that simple. But it's probably worth keeping an eye on. And I think the Keefe system, you know, the third man high defense is encouraged to jump up into the play while the forwards kind of cycle back to cover. The end result of that is to move um, Austin Matthews away from the net. And also, at least theoretically, it gives more shots to defensemen who are pinching as opposed to the puck is always on Matthews' stick. And, you know, all things being equal, if he's on the ice, you want him to be the shooter because he's unbelievably good at it. Mm-hmm. And it, again, I'm paraphrasing Katja here, but that's one of her, her criticisms of the Keefe system is often you'll end up with Justin Hall having the puck in a shooting position instead of Austin Matthews. And that's not really an A-plus outcome. So all of that stuff in terms of team context factors in, we're more keen on it with Matthews, obviously. And then McDavid, we just talked about, but it's relevant to all these players. And, uh, I guess you could also say this is probably part of the issue with ever trying to rank players because we can't totally be sure as to, you know, how much of their, their impact is circumstantial. But yeah, I think that they got the right, the right candidates on these lists. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, I guess it's not it's not too hard to find the six best guys. The, the order, as we covered, I think it's largely arguable. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say, so I'm just looking at who they had. I think Stewart is too low on, on Pedersen. I, I think, I'm pretty sure I'd have Pedersen above Dreisaitl. I would. I would have Justin Bourne's list, which is McDavid, Matthews, Pedersen, Dreisaitl, Tavares, in that order. I think that that's yeah, correct. I, 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 think, I think McDavid is... is I would put him one. I can see an argument for, you know, Matthews or Pedersen one, but I would put McDavid one. And then Matthews, Pedersen, I, would, I can flip-flop. And then Dreisaitl, Tavares, Shifley. I, 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 I think Dreisaitl's probably four, and then either Tavares and Shifley is five. Yeah, I think that that's reasonable. So, And maybe this is just, like, unfair to, to Dreisaitl a little bit, because I, I think we're, we're penalizing him a bit for the fact that he has the best QOT of any of these guys. Exactly, yeah. I mean, he's the... He's the guy who you think, okay, he might not be the best player on his team, which also applies to Tavares, but mm-hmm. obviously McDavid and Pedersen and Shifley all have to be the best forwards on their teams. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's something to factor in. 
I, I do get why Oilers fans seem so mad that they feel like Dreisaitl has never gotten proper respect. And, you know, the fact that the Edmonton media appears to be a cheering section at times for Leon Dreisaitl probably doesn't help. He is very, very good. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I worry we got away from that a little bit when we were like, okay, I don't think he deserves the heart trophy, but, like, he's an amazing player. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, let's not mess around. Um, the winger lists were a little bit more open, I thought. So Anthony Stewart had one, Matthew Kachuk, two, William Nylander, da-da-da-da, three, Kyle Connor, four, Patrick Laine, five, Mitch Marner. And then Justin Bourne had one, Marner, two, Matthew Kachuk, three, J.T. Miller, Vancouver, four Brady Kachuk, and five Kyle Connor. Right. This is more interesting. I mean, yeah. JT Miller is a fish out of water on this list, I think. He's he's a he's a good player. He really is. Um, yeah, and I'm, you know, he scored in bunches last year. Well yeah, and it's also but like I mean we just spent the last ten minutes saying, Yeah, Pedersen might be number one, right? And it's like, <laughs> well he, Exhibit A. Yeah. Y- you I know, mean, JT Miller went to play with him and immediately had a career season by an enormous margin at age 26. Yeah. So, yeah, he's he's benefiting a bit. He's a good winger, but yeah, I don't think he belongs in this company, to be honest. Yeah, um, no, nor, nor do I. He also, <clears throat> Miller had a very good shooting year, and he, he's been a good shooter in the past, but this was, you know, one of his better shooting years. Mm-hmm. He came off a down year in Tampa Bay in terms of his... his um, shooting. He played more minutes than ever before, right? So, like, a lot of things... Well, he, he he's very good. Yeah. I probably wouldn't put him third on this list. No, he wouldn't be on my list at all. And I, I will be honest, I think that having him top ten is totally legit. Mm-hmm. But he's not... He's not really brushing my top five. And so, yeah, let's, uh, let's look at this. I have... Matthew Kachuk, number one. I'm not happy about it. He is what our colleague El Saldo calls a shit weasel. He, you know, he's a dirty player. He's provocative. He's all of those things. He's also really fucking good mm-hmm. at all aspects of the sport. I don't really know what else to say. And as long as hockey rewards playing the way that he does, that's going to have value all its own. You know, he'll get under your skin. He's a prick on the ice. He's extremely talented. And so... Yeah, you know, someone asked me for a mailbag forever ago, would you trade Mitch Marner for Matthew Kachuk? If their contracts were the same, I'm not sure what my answer would be. As it is, I don't even have to think about it. i take Matthew Kachuk in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So, but this list, you know, doesn't account for cap value, so I have him narrowly ahead of Marner at number two. Uh, I have Brendan Gallagher, who neither of them mentioned, number three. He's yeah, I don't a- know how they forgot Gallagher. He doesn't seem to get a lot of respect. And, you know, on the one hand, I'm happy about that because he's a hab. And, and he, so, he, he's another, you know... He's okay. a prick, it, it, yeah. Dude, it sucks. I hate playing against Brendan Gallagher. Not that oh. I play against him. I hate, I, hate uh. having, I hate when the Leafs play the habs and I have to deal with him for that long. Yeah, he's just another fucking problem. But well, he goes like, to the most dangerous area of the ice and he puts the puck in there and he yeah. shoves until he does it. He, he, he's, he's also, you know... The type of player who is just like, he's the perfect type of player to just completely fuck up the Leafs specifically, I feel. Mm-hmm. Because, <laughs> you know, being strong in front of the net, not really our strong suit. 
Oh, you're telling me Justin Hall didn't go in there and just muscle him out? Wow, big surprise. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm, you know, this isn't a Justin Hall problem. This is a, everyone on the Leafs except possibly Jake Muzzin problem. Yeah, no, to be clear, I'm Justin Hall is maybe emblematic of it, but he's by far not alone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, like it, it's there, there's been so many times where I don't know. It, it's it's like uh, in The Simpsons when when Krusty is like he bet he bets on the Washington Generals, right? And he's like. <laughs> He's just spinning the ball. Just take it from him. It's like, you know, he's in front of the net. Someone fucking cover him, please. And it's not that simple, obviously, because, you know, he does that against 30 teams in the league. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, he's aggravating. Yeah. And it is probably relevant here that of all of the guys I listed, he's the oldest. And I could see when the decline comes for Gallagher, it coming pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's going to come now, he's 27, but just, I don't know that he'll age on this list to the extent the other guys who might all still be here in three or four years. Yeah. But yeah, as it stands, I, I think he's brilliant. He's the only genuine superstar in, in Montreal at forward. And as much as I resent everything that he does and is, he's an effective player. And then fourth, I had our Lord and Savior, William Nylander. Yep. Uh, yeah, Nylander just a, a good balance of transition, play driving, and this year he learned how to finish with the puck. Yeah, and, and th- this is really... Like, if, if... I would put Nylander higher if I was more sure he was going to continue to be a good finisher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if he keeps shooting like this going forward, he's definitely one of the best wingers in the world. I mean, he already is, but like then he really becomes a very high-value player because he can do everything. Yeah, like it's worth mentioning that um, of these players, Nylander led by a pretty significant margin in expected goals above replacement this year. And yeah, he's in really of, good. Uh, actual goals above replacement, he was third, narrowly behind Marner, and that largely was because, as far as I remember, he had a pretty poor on-ice save percentage. Mm. I'll have to double-check that. But like the way Nylander played this year um, was you know, arguably the best of these wingers. Yeah. It, it's just All-star that, caliber. Yeah. It's just that, you know, he had a, a great year shooting and he didn't have any prior history of being a really excellent shooter. So, you know, we, we've always wanted Nylander to be an elite shooter because then he truly becomes a triple threat offensively. Mm-hmm. He can carry, he can pass, he can shoot. Um, and he always looked like a player, and I've talked about this extensively. He's always looked like a player who has a great shot, but like, it just didn't go in, right? And it was like that Billy Bean thing of, well, if he can shoot good, why doesn't the puck go in when he shoots? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, this year it finally did. And, you know, the eye test matched up with what, what actually happened on the ice. And it's just who knows if that's going to continue going forward. Um, he did indeed have a very low on-ice save percentage, 894. Wow. Um, yeah, so, so that's kind of kind of striking. But, yeah, I think he's, he's certainly comfortably in this category. And... I do buy that he has the the most valuable contract over Marner, for example, just because he makes a lot less money. Yeah, I I, I got to be honest. I, the Kyle Connor thing. Kyle Connor actually might be the most inexplicable choice on this list above well, JT Miller because JT Miller had a very very good year. Kyle Connor isn't argue... inexplicable so much as we don't buy the explanation, which is look at all the pretty goals. Okay, yes, fair. <laughs> uh, inexplicable is the wrong word. Dumb is probably the the best. <laughs> Um, that, that's harsh, but 
Yeah, like with Mitter, I can see the argument for him being on this list. It's like, okay, he's 26. He's not, you know, he's not 35. Mm-hmm. He's not he's not falling off a cliff. Uh, he finally got a chance to play with elite players. He was stuck on the depth chart in Tampa. No shame in that. Mm-hmm. Um, plays with an elite player, gets more minutes. Blossoms has a very, very good year. Mitter did have a very good year. It's just he's only had one really, really outstanding year like this um, where he's played, you know, big minutes and gotten, you know, big results. And I want to see him do it more before I put him this high. So, but but I understand, you know, putting him there at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would probably have him outside the top five, but, you know, probably six, seven, or eight. Like, I don't think he's much lower than five. Okay. Connor is just... He's he's Patrick Laine. <laughs> he's a lot like Patrick Laine. He's a really good goal scorer, and he doesn't do much else. Right. Uh, you know, I think people like him because he's a bit of a power forward. You know, he go, he knows to go to... Yes, stylistically, he's very different from Laine, right? Because Laine yeah. is, like... Bad, like shoots from bad locations, but is so good a shooter that they're not bad locations. Connor shoots from very good locations and has finishing skill. Yeah, um, and Connor has kind of slipped into what stereotypically Line A was, in, in terms of at least when we try to look at what he's actually doing on the ice. The defense is terrible; they get kind of shelled. I, you know, again, Winnipeg feels like a bit of a funhouse mirror to me because they were all so bad. And for such an obvious reason that I wonder a little bit if there's there are limits to isolation, but I don't think there's any argument Cal Connor is a good defensive winner. Well, and and so. Connor's also had this set of results for a while, right? It, not it's to not, this extent. Like, this is, it's not a McDavid situation where this is, you know, his defense suddenly got way worse. It's like he's never yeah, been. Yeah, no, he's, he's never been good, but it was like striking this year, mm-hmm. like to, to a new extreme, I guess. He's probably yes. like he's a bad defensive player. But. Yeah. Now, the smart Jets fans I follow have kind of always said that the way you, the way they rank the Jets, you know, star wingers, and they have a bunch of them, is um, Connor is last, Line A is, is second, and the guy who's, fir- who's first is not on either of these lists, and that's Nick e- Eaters. Jesus, I couldn't speak. Nick Eaters. The Nylander of Manitoba. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> um, yeah. And, yeah, it's... Eaters is one of those guys that I, I watch him, you know, fairly frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I he, he shouldn't be a hidden gem because his game is obvious. Right. Right? Like, you know, there, there's, there's guys who are very good and you can understand why they're not highly rated because they don't look amazing. Mm-hmm. Right? They're just kind of unspectacularly doing what they need to do in a kind of a mundane way. Mm-hmm. Um, Craig Smith is the best example I can think of this because his, even his name is boring. <laughs> he could be six or seven different people. Yes, exactly. Um, but Nick Eaters is obvious. When you watch him, he is one of the faster players on the ice. He is a puck control wizard. He is great in the neutral zone. He's active in the offensive zone. He has a good contra- very good contract too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he doesn't get the residual hate of like oh not worth his contract like i think i think marner gets a bit underrated um to some extent because his contract isn't very good but he's still a phenomenal player yeah i think definitely in some quarters on like leaves twitter or whatever people are just too mad about how that negotiation went yeah to, to so see him straight but like with with eaters yeah i don't see i don't get what's there to miss and i guess he had some playoff struggles i think this year was the first year he scored a playoff goal or like first year he scored a playoff goal in quite a while and, you know, you can repeat some of this for, for Nylander, too. Maybe that's why he's a little bit lower on this list than I might have him. 
Um, or at least on Bourne's list. Uh, Anthony Stewart has him too. I wouldn't put him there either. Um, yeah, I'd have him yeah. three or four. Fourth. Four, I'd say. I'd say yeah, four. I have fourth. Um, but yeah, like it's, you know, I, I, I maybe I'm out on an island here when thinking that playoff hockey is generally about the same as regular season hockey. And most of the time when someone isn't doing well in quote unquote playoff hockey, it's because they had a couple bad games against good teams. Mm. Um, and, and not like a moral failing that makes them unable to succeed in playoff hockey. I could be wrong about that. Um, but, you know, assuming that to be true, I think Eaters has to be on this list. I actually didn't have him on mine. I'd have him over Line A. So you had Line A5, I'd have Eaters above Line A for sure. Okay, that's fine. And I will say, I think maybe people haven't updated their opinion of Patrick Line a in a while. Mm-hmm. Because when he came into the league, and he's, you know, a, a deeply fascinating player to look at, you know, he's huge. And if you see him line up that one-timer of his that he has, his stick flexes to an extent that is, like, even kind of visually stunning. Like, it looks like a longbow. He had insane power in his shot. He was finishing at prime Stamkos levels the first couple years he was in the league. You know, like, finishing on about 18% of his shots on goal, which is unbelievable for someone who shoots a lot. And we were like, okay, he's probably going to win a Rocket Richard at some point in his career. Or close to it. And the last few seasons, his finishing has kind of been good. Certainly not bad. But it's not destroying the world or anything anymore. You know, it's, it's just a good shot. And he's still a very good offensive player. But he would have to kind of you know, rev things up a little bit before we start seriously talking about him as the best goal scorer in the world. Yeah. Which is it, what was forecast for him. Like, he had fewer goals last year than William Nylander. Yeah. The thing is, like, Line A, when he came into the league, was basically a great shooter and not much else. Mm-hmm. And the rest of his game has improved a little bit, it seems. Yeah. But, you know, if he's no longer a great, great shooter, or he's not getting the results that a great, great shooter would get, well, yeah, that's a huge issue. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean... It's like if McDonald's stops selling hamburgers. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, okay, well, what do you do now? Yeah, that's what you're for, buddy. And so, like, he's still a good player, don't get me wrong. And I still have him there, mostly because I'm inclined to buy that this could improve again. But, you know, it hasn't looked that hot. And his ice time has actually sort of started to drop a little bit. It's just noteworthy. There was a really precipitous drop towards the back end of last year. Yeah, like, to the point where he looks a lot more like a second-slash-third-liner at the end than a first-liner, which he at least ought to be on merit, even if, uh, you know, even if there's not space for him on the top line. And, you know, he's expressed at various times he's not very happy playing with anyone other than Shifley because the Jets often have had a hole at second-line center. There was a very long-standing rumor that he was going to be traded this offseason and it hasn't mm-hmm. happened at least not yet but i can't really convince myself that it's all just gone you well yeah it's I mean? like, like it's he, like you know he, 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 he did forget how to shoot surely right like it's... yeah and he's 22 
And I just, like, I have to think that it's still there. But, like, it's been two years now where he's been shooting, like, a merely good person. Like, we... The comparison was always with Matthews, where it was, okay, Matthews generates more high-danger shots, but Line has the insane finishing talent where he can shoot hugely above average from the top of the circles. And that hasn't happened anymore. Matthews is straight up a better finisher than he is now, and as well as being better at pretty much every other facet of the game. Like, there was that Twitter meme that went around being like, Line is better than Matthews, changed my mind, or whatever like that. That's not even a serious question anymore. Like, like, it's funny if you want to troll Leaf Sands, and by all means. But, like, there's no argument for it at all. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like, it, 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 it just, even in having him fifth, I recognize when you say I have Neelers, uh, sorry, Nick Ehlers over Patrick Laine. I think that that's pretty arguable. That's pretty defensible, especially on the basis of what did they do last year. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Laine's. I still believe in that shooting talent, but it hasn't been in evidence as much lately. And if it keeps not showing up to a huge extent, uh, he's not going to be on this list much longer in my head. So Yeah, it's a real put up or shut up here. Yeah, uh, and especially for him, you know, he's kind of expressed that he wants to, to get out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. And they've got a contract negotiation next offseason, which I'm sure will be horrible. But maybe Winnipeg will just say, look, we can't attract free agents you have to stay <laughs> so yeah yeah um okay so our next thing was we were going to look at travis dermott um travis dermott is like the most popular topic on leaf's twitter seemingly always yeah but, um, and so yeah because he presents some hope and he's, he's lost some of his luster in many eyes because he's no longer the the new hotness, the way that Rasmus Sandin is. But he's done really well in third-player minutes. And we see people talking all the time. Is Travis Dermott, you know, ready to break out? A lot of people think that he is. And so maybe we thought it would be worth just discussing that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. He shows as a decent defensive player by most of the metrics. You know, like his expected goals against are pretty good. He's generally killed it against third-pair competition. This year, he actually did play some tougher minutes. I, I feel like I should point that out. Because through injury, primarily. Through injury, primarily, yeah. Uh, he and Hall played some tough minutes together when things got really dire. They looked good by XG. They got killed in actual goals. And the sample is so small, it's hard to say much other than maybe they got goalied. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Our experience generally is that when players move from the left side to the right side, they get a bit worse. Not always, but it's generally considered harder to play on your offside as a defenseman, especially when the puck is coming up around the boards in the offensive zone at you. You don't have a stick on the boards to catch it. Mm-hmm. And so you have to awkwardly take it on your back end. It's a little harder to do. I don't know if we're going to get a sample this season unless he takes Justin Hall's job next to Jake Muzzin. Yeah, I mean, there's we have such a huge long jam of, mm-hmm. of guys uh, in the third pair, essentially. But in terms of top four roles, barring any major injuries, um, there's really only that one spot mm-hmm. on the second pair that, that's up for grabs. You know, <laughs> Riley, Muzzin, and Brody are, are locks. Yeah. So, 
Hall probably has the inside track by virtue of how he played with, with Muzzin last year. But Dermot's probably the next guy up if Hall's ineffective, and he's certainly the next guy up in case of injury. Right. And we'd be foolish to not expect some sort of injury or possibly COVID-related issues this season. Yes. And so we may finally get a bit more of a sample of how good is Travis Dermott really. Mm -hmm. A lot of people love how he looked, especially in that first year where he seemed to put up gangbuster numbers. Right now, his offense doesn't look like very much. I don't know how much you really blame a defenseman, especially one who, you know, most of plays on the third pairing for that. Mm -hmm. You can say that that's going to be kind of subject to fluctuation. The eye test likes him mostly because of gap control. I think it's fair to say. I think we talk about that, so maybe it's worth just mentioning quickly what is gap control. When you're a defenseman and the forward is coming through the neutral zone at you, probably with the puck, the gap is the distance that you keep between you and the forward if you're the defenseman. You don't want to be too far back because then you give him space to kind of do whatever he wants and maybe to pick up speed, zoom by you, or make plays. A lot of the defensemen who look good by the eye test, but terrible by stats, such as Rasmus Ristolainen or whoever, are kind of infamous for leaving big gaps. So the result is they don't get burned because no one gets by them. They're already back, but they don't actually stop much from happening. And then if you play a really tight, aggressive gap, that's good as long as you do it, but it will look really bad when you fail because you will get walked. And then you're leaving an odd man rush going the other way, which is very bad. Travis Dermott is generally good at this. He's very solid. You know, he's six feet, 205. So, you know, he's <laughs> got some weight on his skates. And he can keep a pretty tight gap. Like, he's able to stay close enough to pressure the opposing forward without getting beat so often that it defeats the purpose. So if you want to eye test Travis Dermott into a, a bigger role... I would probably say you're looking at that and saying transition defense. Right. Does that and, translate to being able to do the job? I don't know. Well, it's also one of those things where, you know, if, if the main thing he's good at is transition defense, mm -hmm. you know, and he isn't, his effect on offense has not been incredibly good after his first year. Mm -hmm. And we think of him as a guy who's pretty active and kind of jumps out as me. He's always being a little frenetic, actually. Mm -hmm. Um. But, you know, he, if, he, if he's not really driving offense, that's not necessarily a bigger issue on the Leafs specifically if he plays higher up because of who right. he'd be playing with primarily. Now, you know, he's not... In general, I'm a little skeptical of defenseman's ability to drive offense. I think, mm -hmm. generally speaking, at least with the Leafs as constituted, your job is make one good pass and then let the forwards do their thing for the most part. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and... I think Dermot can do that if put in a higher role, but we we're not going to know until we actually see him do it, right? As you said, he did it for a little bit of time this year and it didn't look awful, but it was such a bizarre year in terms of injuries throughout the Leafs lineup that it wasn't, you know, a really great test and it obviously wasn't a huge sample either. Yeah. Maybe what comes back to me is, okay, let's say everyone is healthy. What's the case for putting him with Jake Muzzin on his offside over Justin Hall? And the case is, I guess, you think Dermot is going to be part of the organization longer. Well, or you I think buy that. I think there isn't really a great case initially. The case is, oh, maybe that pairing isn't working as well as we think. And let's try right. Dermot there. Yeah, because Muzzin and Hall statistically looked pretty good. 
even if it's mostly Jake Muzzin. But, like, it's it's probably fine. Now, I imagine Travis Dermott would probably look at least okay, because Jake Muzzin is one of those very solid defensive players. And he can do the job well. <laughs> but if you're a team that's trying to win now, and the Leafs are, is it something that you feel impelled to do? You know, to make that change? I don't know that you feel like you have to. You might stick with what's already worked until Travis Dermott really shows you something saying, no, you have to put me here. I'm that good. And I don't see that in anything that I've looked at with him. I see like a guy who's a good third pair defenseman might be more, might not. And I do feel like we talk a lot about third pair defensemen who don't turn out to well, be able to make the jump, but some of them do. Well, it's because we the Leafs needed defensemen since as long as we've done the podcast. Yeah. And you can't, you can't get, you know, a second pairing defenseman without trading William Nylander, apparently. So, Dear God, yeah. And so, yeah, it, it it's very hard to tell. And I, I regret that we're probably going to sort of answer this question with a punt. But all I see is a maybe here. I don't see any sure things, and I don't see a no either. And, and again, he's not, you know... At, at the point where I'm writing him off either. I'm just saying, at this point, I think he's like maybe a 4-5 kind of defenseman. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a world where he's the kind of beta defenseman on a second pair and it does fine. Yeah, and that's not hard to see. And if he were doing it with right-handed Jake Muzzin, for example, that wouldn't surprise me in the least. Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah. the complicating issue is he has to do it on his offside. Yeah. At least on the Leafs. Yeah, so maybe that's less of a problem for him. It really seems to depend on the player. Mm-hmm. But that's, I guess, something that we're just going to have to wait and see if he gets the opportunity. And Kyle Dubas has kind of alluded to that maybe being a thing. Um, even though when you look at the current lineup, again, he has to take someone's job for that to happen when healthy. So Yes. Okay. Uh, Shall we last... move on to the Canadian division? Yeah, and so this is just a general look at this stuff. Uh, As per Pierre Lebrun of The Athletic, the league and the union are currently discussing a 56-game season to start in mid-January and end in July. Obviously, that is open to question. I am not sure what measures they're going to have to keep the players safe, but it doesn't sound like a bubble is ever in contemplation. No, I I think it's don't be idiots, guys. Yeah, and, uh, well... It's going to be tough, and you, well, you know the way that yeah, and, and it's you can, going you can, right now. You can, you can catch COVID without being an idiot, you know. It's yeah, just, that's the thing. This is can... not a thing where it's like, oh, you caught COVID, you're so dumb. Like you know, you you catch it. Sometimes it just happens. Now, NHL players should be um, a lot. They should have the privilege to avoid a lot of the situations that people who do catch COVID more often that um, you know cannot avoid. Right? We've seen that uh, COVID disproportionately impacts minorities disproportionately impacts uh lower class people disproportionately impacts people who rely on public transit nhl players do not fit into any of those generally speaking mm-hmm. so they should be safer than the average person but you know you can get it from going to the grocery store yeah uh, and once it gets in to a team because one of the most pernicious things about COVID, of course is that it can be quite hard to detect during the first days, you're contagious, and some people are totally asymptomatic. There's a lot of close living in being on a hockey team and close contact in being on the ice. Yes. And so there's a real concern here about once it gets in, 
How does it spread? Is it worse than other sports? And it's possible that hockey is pretty bad for this. Yeah. Yeah. It's not outdoors like soccer or football. Mm-hmm. Um, basketball is, is indoors in closed environment as well. But with hockey, there's, first off, a ton of... You're, you're, you're running 45-second sprints and then mm-hmm. getting off the ice. There's a lot of hard breathing during that time. The air is colder. Mm-hmm. And because of what the ventilation you need in order to you know, run a hockey rink, you cannot continuously pump air from outside inside. Mm-hmm. So it might, hockey might be uniquely positioned to be awful in terms of how easily it spreads COVID if a player has it. Yeah. And so this is concerning as to whether the NHL can even prudently operate. And I have to admit, I have some concerns about it. I would love to have something on to watch hockey-wise in terms of the Leafs. But maybe that's not, you know, safely doable. As boring as this winter is without it, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if it's going to be safe. So we'll have to see where we're at. I'll tentatively accept, like, for the purposes of this segment, let's say the NHL can do it safely. And so one of the things that they've looked at is a Canadian division to save the Canadian teams having to hop over the border. We've already seen the Blue Jays and the Raptors have had to relocate to the United States for a season at a time to avoid crossing the border over and over, which the Canadian government won't allow. With seven Canadian teams, the NHL is in a bit of a different boat. So the current theory is they'll all just play each other. Mm-hmm. Which, if it comes to pass, obviously the first question on everyone's lips is, how does this affect the Leafs? Yes. <laughs> and it probably helps them. Because they should be the best team in the Canadian division. And while I don't think people like acknowledging that seemingly, I don't... I have a hard time coming to another conclusion, to be honest with you. I think they're the favorites, but it's a pretty flat distribution. Yeah. You know, moving from the Atlantic, Tampa and Boston leave, who are the two teams that are definitively better than Toronto. And so that's good for us. They also lose out on Detroit, who suck absolute butt. But what can you do? The Like, Toronto should be the best team in the Canadian division, even granted Montreal has improved a bit. And so... If those teams are all playing each other over and over, I mean, the Leafs have a better chance at winning their division than they have at any season in the past, I don't know, 20 years, which is potentially beneficial, especially depending on what we see in terms of a playoff format. You know, do they get to skip a bye round or something of that nature? Um, the condensed schedule issue might require more rest, and in terms of players needing time off to recover from injuries or what have you, and the Leafs have signed a couple of old players. I'm wondering if there's going to be some sort of accommodation in terms of cap or waivers or what have you that might enable the Leafs to carry more players or teams in general, obviously. The Leafs kind of need both because they're very close to the cap. Uh, they can't really run a 23-man roster, much less a larger one. Yeah. And so I don't know if they're expecting that. It would make sense given all the forwards and defensemen the Leafs have who are kind of in the running. And it's also relevant that in a 56-game season, shit can kind of get wild. You know, there's a smaller sample for crazy stuff to happen. I Mm -hmm. think everyone remembers that the Leafs in 2013 
made the playoffs with an absolutely awful team that just had hot goaltending. Yeah. And so the chances of that happening, or conversely, a good team getting sewered by goaltending, go way up uh, as you reduce the sample. So, yeah, all of that stuff kind of factors in there. Any thoughts on the Canadian division? Pretty much what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's... Oh, it's going to be really toxic. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be some hatred. Y- you know, this country loathes each other. And that's uh, that's part of the fun. There are going to be some intense games. And, you know, Toronto-Montreal, if we ever get a playoff series between them, it will suck if we lose. Oh, God. But it will be one of the most intense playoff series in recent memory. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I think it could be fun, to be honest. Like, we always play weird games against Montreal. There was, you know, Capitan trying out for Javelin. <laughs> there was that cat shit guy game. Oh! Yeah, that was against the half. Man, we, we, were, was... we were down 3 nothing, And then we came back. And I remember, I think one of the, I don't know if it was, I forget which goal it was, but one of them was just like a fr- weird flute goal where we dumped it in. Price went out to play the puck and just took an awful hop right in front of the net and Nylander scored. Yeah, dude. God, good memory. Uh, there have been some weird Well, games. there weren't that many Nylander goals that year. It's pretty easy to remember all of them. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's just odd games against Montreal. It's continually the case. Yeah. I'll, I'll enjoy, and, I'll enjoy yeah. more games against Ottawa. Um, yeah, uh, Ottawa... You know, I just don't really have any fear for them at all this year. Yeah, I mean, now we've jinxed it, and Connor Brown is going to get a hat trick. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the reality is they're, you know, having a fun rebuild, and that's totally fine. But, like, they're still very bad. Mm-hmm. And Evgeny Dodonov is not going to fix that by himself. Um, you know, the Oilers, I think we talked about a lot in the first segment. They're, like, a good middling team. But just by virtue of being a kind of better mushy middle team, and I think the Leafs are notwithstanding that they burned a lot of points in the first two months of last year, mm-hmm. I think the Leafs are clearly above them. Calgary is the definition of kind of middling. They've been aggressively mediocre the past season. Yeah. Yeah. And then Vancouver is just a top-heavy mess that probably got a little bit worse, unless Thatcher Demko was a superstar. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts? That's about it. Okay, we ran a minute, and sorry, an hour and 20 minutes in a period where nothing is happening. I'm very <laughs> proud of our ability. To <laughs> never just... trust our ability to bullshit out of nothing. <laughs> or never doubt our ability to bullshit out of nothing. <laughs> yeah, so we hope that this has been enjoyable for, for people who listen to us, you know, just shooting the shit. So, yes. thank you. Um, yeah. So, yeah, thank you all for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at PetroNetPuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and H. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you.